Good morning, church. Isn't God just wonderful? And what a blessing it is to be able to assemble together to worship our wonderful God. It is great to see each of you here this morning, both members and visitors alike. We thank you for your attendance. Uh, let's go, please, to God in a word of prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, hallowed be your great and amazing name. We stand in awe of you and your wondrous works and your loving kindness that is everlasting. And the fact that you hold together the world simply by the word of your power and the universe, things seen and unseen. This morning we are, we are so thankful that we get to worship you and that you receive our worship. We ask, Lord God, that our worship will and thus far has been pleasing and acceptable in, in your sight. Help us to remember Jesus in all things. Bless us, Lord God, to rid our minds of worldly thoughts and strengthen us as only you can. It's in that wonderful, magnificent, most awesome, and holy name of Jesus Christ to be thy will. Amen. Philippians uh, chapter... One, as we continue with the thought of worthy conduct. And last week we spoke of um, conveniences and, and inconveniences. And I, I guess a question to be asked is, how in, in your life or in my life, how, how much has modern conveniences spoiled me uh, to the point to where uh, I really don't want to be inconvenienced, even in our service to our Lord. We'll come back to that. So Philippians chapter 1 gives us the three S's in worthy conduct. 1, verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I may hear of you, that you are, number one, standing firm. And the second, in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So, standing together in unity, striving together in humility and faith. And then, moving together, Philippians chapter 3, moving together in this relationship, this solid relationship with God and with each other. Verse 13, the Bible says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and re reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However... Let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. So God has this expectation that we stand together in love, that we walk together, strive together in this walk of faith and humility. It's a together thing in Christ Jesus. Now, the third S. Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 28. That we suffer together. But why suffer? Why this, this idea or this thought 
But there's something that Satan knows about us, about mankind, about humanity, that I want to come back to and talk about in just a moment. And, and let's see if, if Satan might, if he might be a little right. Verse 28 says, In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Suffer together. Stand together. Strive together. And suffer together. And the world who inflicts this suffering upon us, they think that's their greatest strength. But in reality, it's their greatest weakness. And see, it's the opposite. We're going to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It is the opposite with the Christian walk of life, of the Christian faith, in that when we are weak, that is when we are actually strongest in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 7, And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. It is in my weaknesses that I learn to fully trust in God. Right? To learn that. To fully trust in God. It is in my weakness that we meet Jesus. It's in my weakness that we meet the grace of God. It is in our weakness that that, that grace of God brings us to our, our knees and and it helps us to understand the true reality of humility. And that is the power of God in us. When we find ourselves submitting and surrendering to God in humility. It is a weakness that in this weakness we meet grace. And that grace brings us through. It is through grace that we gain God's favor. It is through grace that we experience God's mercy, God's forgiveness. The writer says in verse 9, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. But there's this contrast. On, on one hand, there's this suffering. And on the other hand, there's this grace and Paul said, God removed the suffering. And God said, I can't because I've got to give you my grace. I just kind of want us to get this for a moment. 
Romans chapter uh, chapter 5. The grace of God carries with it an idea of inexpressible, inexhaustible sufficiency. In other words, it's not just enough. It's forever and ever more than enough. There's so much grace. Now here's where we might, some people take this out of context. But let's grab the whole context. Romans 5 and verse 20. And the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the whole world's sin, right? All of the sins of the entire world, from, from Adam from the very first all the way to the last, cannot outdo grace. That's a lot of grace. There's absolutely no way that our sins could ever outdo God's grace or outnumber God's grace. It is inexhaustible, God's grace. But the text tells us in chapter 6, so I said we have to keep reading, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? And so the whole world joined together. I'm going to Deuteronomy chapter 29. The whole world joined together with all the sins still cannot exhaust the sufficiency of God's grace. God's grace is a beautiful idea and display of inexhaustible sufficiency. It's more than enough. It's forever more than enough. I'm not even sure that's grammatically correct. But you can't be grammatically correct when you're talking about God's grace. You might say, what does God's grace have to do with suffering? We're getting to that. Let me give you an idea of what that inexhaustible sufficiency might look like. Deuteronomy 29, beginning at verse 2. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders, Yet to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. And I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals has not worn out on your foot. Now they were walking through the desert for 40 years, and their clothes, their clothes did not wear out. Their sandals did not wear out for 40 years. That's inexhaustible, right? Sufficiency, right? Now, I'm not going to say what a blessing that would have been. Never mind. You know, no more shoes. Nothing wore out. Nothing 
wore out. So now the question this morning, what does this have to do with suffering? So we, we stand together, we strive together, we suffer together, but what does all of this have to do with suffering? Because in suffering, we are weak. But that is when God's strength is displayed in our lives. That is when we allow God to, to enter truly into our hearts and minds and display His strength in us and to us. It is during our suffering that we go through, all the suffering we go through, that we learn to fully rely on God. See, it's when you're, it's when you're in that bed of distress and when you're suffering and when you're looking to God and you're saying, only God can help me. It's amazing what it does to the mind. As we look to God, we look to the heavens and we say, Lord, please help me. You ever been there? And you know that only God can help you. It's then that we come to God with all of our mind and with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our strength and we say, Dear God, please help me. You ever been in a situation where you're facing, you're standing before, maybe in the presence of death. Oh Lord, help me. Or maybe in a troubling situation and you might, you might say, Oh God, help me. And you know that in that moment, in that hour, only God, only God and no one else can bring you through. Maybe in a situation of life. And here's the point. We're supposed to always feel that way. See that. Understand that. Apply that. Live by that. Walk in that faith. But no, it's when we're weakest that we go there. But we're supposed to live there, church. Only God can bring us through. Satan thinks he has our number. I'm going to Job for just a moment to grab a practical lesson for us. Satan thinks he has our number. And my question this morning is, does he, does he have my number? He believes that every human being has a price of which or at which we will sell our souls. Is he right? And what he does on a regular basis, on a continual basis, is he seeks to find your number. He believes that humans find displeasure in God if we have to suffer. If I have to suffer, if God says, Tony, I need you today. I, I need you to suffer today because I'm trying to, I'm trying to do something. Will you, will you volunteer and be my servant? Lord, can't you pick somebody else? Right. And then when we start suffering, we start looking to God and saying, God, why are you doing this to me? Satan also believes that if, if he can find a way to bring displeasure into our lives, we'll blame God, won't we? We'll blame God for all the bad stuff that goes on in our lives. He believes 
He's found what makes us tick. Has he? Bring inconveniences and suffering into their lives, God, and they will curse you to your face. Oh, come on. He's not right, is he? Well, just listen for a moment. Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Right there we go. See, God, it was all God's fault. Right? It's all God's fault. God, why did you do that to Job? Why, why, why? Have you considered my servant Job? For there is none like him on earth. A blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And then Satan answered the Lord. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but you see, there's a reason why Job is like that. Right? Satan says, yeah, does Job fear God for nothing? See, see here's the thing, God. You, you have brought no inconveniences or suffering into his life. I mean, you keep protecting him. How do you know, Satan? Well, I've been trying to get to him. But you keep protecting him. In fact, in verse 10, it says, Hast thou not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has and on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Yeah, that, that's why he loves you, God. That's why all these people love you. That's why the church loves you. That's why Israel loves you. But you know what, God? You bring some inconveniences and suffering into their lives. They'll curse you to your face. See, they don't really love you, God. They love what you provide for them. Hmm. Satan believed that Job was only serving God because Job wasn't suffering. Satan believes that if he can make us see God as the one who brings the displeasure into our lives, we might say the enemy, if, we can find, if he can find a way to make us see God as the persecutor and the enemy, we'll curse God to his face. Not me, right? Listen to verse 11. But put forth thy hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. See, one of the things that's difficult for us to do is to wrap our minds around the, the true depth in the mind of God as to, as to this whole account. Right? We know, we look at the, the, the text, we see Job 1 through Job 42, and we see that it's not God, it's Satan, and Satan's doing all. But then we come back and we say, yeah, but God allowed it to happen. And then God chose Job, so therefore it's God's fault. And Satan says, I got them. I've got them. 
I've got them right where I want them, God. I want them to blame you for every bad thing that happens in their lives. See, God, what they want you to do is they want you to suspend, suspend gravity for them for just a moment. Just for them. What, what they want is they want to be in that Garden of Eden when there's no, no text that says Adam and Eve ever even got sick. They want their heaven on earth. That's what they want. And God, if I can just, if I can just get them to blame you, I'll win their souls. Because they'll indeed curse you to your face. Job 2, verse 4 and 5. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth thy hand now and touch his bones and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. He believes this. Is he right about me? Please turn to Revelation chapter. So here we're, we're in the beginning. Job is pre-flood, right? Now we're going to the end. Revelation, please. Even though you say, well, you know, you look back at the text and you go, well, see, Satan failed with Job. But here's the thing that we can learn from the book of Job. One of many things that we can learn. Satan believes this so much about us, so deep within his own mind. He has never changed his strategy of attack on humans. So that means for thousands of years, while mankind's lived on the earth, you can go back to the book of Genesis and read all the way through to Revelation and watch Satan work the exact same way over and over and over and over again. And he's winning. In many occasions, he wins and he wins and he wins. And he kills the prophets. And he kills those who stand for God so that others will grow weak. And he's using the same tactics. Same tactics. The same tactics. And then in Roman, uh, Revelation 12, rather, and verse 10, the same tactic. But he ran into a wall when he hit these people, these saints who saw, who understood hope. He ran into a wall, and the wall was Satan. No, we got you. Because here's what the Bible says in verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brother has been thrown down who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives even to death. Through all the suffering for the name of Christ and for all the inconveniences in the name of Christ, they welcomed it in their service to the Lord and became victorious. Satan used the same, the same strategy, the same attack on humans over and over and over and over again. Make them suffer and they'll walk away from you, God. They will curse you to your face. 
Is he right? Turn to Hebrews, please. Chapter 10. Is he right, church? Here's what's beautiful about the church. We have this picture. And the picture that we have that's in front of us is a picture of the very beginning. And we even have a glimpse into the future, right? Because God tells us what's coming. He talks about the heavens and what a beautiful thing it is for God's people. We have an understanding as we look back in the scriptures of what Satan has done to God's people, to the righteous people over and over and over again. We can see it. We can read about it. And many of us have felt it. Satan still believes that. Is it true? Is Satan right? Listen to what the text says in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of suffering. You endured a great conflict of suffering partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Suffering. You suffered, but you won. You suffered, but you gained the victory. Satan is bringing this not just upon you, not just upon me, but the Bible says upon all the brethren. First Peter 5, beginning, if you will, at verse 8, he talks about Satan going about like a prowling, like a, a roaring lion. Listen to what it says. Uh, be of sober spirit, verse 8. Be on the alert for your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone, just like in Job, just like in the early Genesis, seeking someone to devour. He's doing the same thing. Right? He's looking and he's looking and he's looking. And then it says in verse 9, But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of sufferings are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. It's not just me. Right? And when I get into this, this slump and my bed of slumber, I'm looking to God and I'm saying, God, help me. But not just me, God. There are brethren all over the world who are suffering just like me. But you stand for Jesus. And we need to strive together. And we need to look at suffering in a different light. So let's think for just a moment. James 1 and verse 17. James 1 and verse 17. How do I conduct myself in a worthy, in a worthy manner knowing that Satan is bringing upon me suffering Struggles and difficulty. Well, let's put life in a perspective. May I ask the question, does Satan have us figured out? Where does all the bad stuff come from in our lives? You know, listen to what the Bible says. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every 
good thing comes from where? God. Where's all the bad stuff coming from? Satan. Now, this morning, if you believe that, I, I want you to say it with me. Every good thing comes from from God. And every bad thing comes from do you believe that? See, Satan, does he have our number? Because you say, whoa, whoa, whoa preacher. I, I can show you some bad stuff that came from God, can't you really? It, it's like, it's like um, heat and cold. That, that cold is the absence of heat. Right? And so if God makes a law, Romans, Romans 4 teaches us this, then, then there's the opportunity to sin. But where there's no law, there's no violation. So when God makes a law, Satan does what? Satan says, look, I'm going to bring all this evil stuff into this. So here, here's God. God gives us good. And when God brings us good, what does Satan know? There's an opportunity to take that good and turn it into evil. Well, well, preacher, give me an example. Well, fire is good. Fire can cook your steak. Fire can keep us warm. What has Satan done? Ask the arsonist. Right? Satan takes what's good and turns it into evil. So all the good stuff comes from God. God is a God of, of wonderful grace and mercy and kindness and compassion and Satan is full of evil and he's a liar and the father of lies. And what he wants to do is deceive us into believing that God is not good. But we know that God is good all the time. Right? All the time. God, there's never a time when God has not been good. Satan has always been bad, evil, and wicked. That's who he is. I'm not saying God made him that way. The Bible says, and God looked at his creation in Genesis chapter 1 and saw that it was very good, and that included Satan too. But he turned evil because they have free will as well. Every good thing comes from God. So church, I think what we ought to think about doing is counting our blessings every single day day preacher today it was a uh, today was a, a, a terrible day I, all day well that seems kind of arrogant to ask it in that way right well no not all day but okay well let's count the blessings let's start first hour let's go <laughs> right and you start realizing wait a minute I had 23 good hours and I had one or maybe the whole day was bad but the whole week was great Look, we've got to start looking to God and thinking about God in the right light and saying, God, if I have to be inconvenienced to be your child, so be it. I'm still going to be your child. And today, church, here's what happens. We are being persecuted for standing up for what's right. Stand up, the Bible says. Strive together and suffer together. It's all right. The three S's in worthy conduct. Philippians chapter 1, verse 28. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction. Does that read right? Because if they're an opponent, it's a... Wait, so they're coming after me, but it's not a sign of destruction for me. It's actually the world's greatest weakness. It's actually a sign of destruction 
for them. Wow. we got to read that again. In no way, alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. So the bad and the evil that Satan means to bring upon me turns out to be a blessing from God. Only God can turn a bad thing into a good thing. Doesn't he promise that? He promised to work all things together for the good for those who love God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. Wait, let me read that again. For to you it has been granted. You mean to tell me that, wait, so suffering is a gift? I got to rethink this one. For you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Oh, I get it now. I'm starting to figure it out. So the God of the universe who doesn't need me. The God of the universe who is the creator, who sustains and holds all things together. The God of the universe says, Tony, I'm going to let you do something for me. (laughs) Whoa, whoa. You're going to let me do something for you, God? Yeah, I'm going to let you do something. For me, it's a gift. Thank you, God. That doesn't sound right, does it? Thank you, God, for allowing me to suffer for your name's sake. Okay, I had to come back to that. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. All right, so let's get ready to wrap this up. Two scriptures and we'll go. I think the only way we're going to understand this in depth in our hearts and minds. Let's go back and look at the Acts of the Apostles. The book of Acts, the chapter is 5. The apostles are all preaching the word, and they're talking about Jesus, and they're saying, you know, Jesus was a great man, a good man, a man without sin, a man full of love, compassion, and mercy. In fact, he was the greatest gift the earth ever seen. He did nothing wrong to the Romans. He did nothing wrong to any man, the greatest neighbor, the greatest man, the greatest blessing. I mean, he was perfect. He was so wonderful, the only problem with him was his greatness exposed our sin. And you know, the world said, we want nothing to do with him. Let me tell you a little more about Jesus. And they were just talking about this great and wonderful person. Can you imagine that? We're all talking about someone great and someone wonderful. And what are we, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, shouldn't you want to hear about this great and wonderful person? We'd rather hear the news, wouldn't we? Someone died. (laughs) So for the sake of Jesus... The apostles were out preaching, and they were saying, Serve God, honor God, love God. Acts 5, beginning at verse 38. And so in the present case, I say to you, this is, by the way, Gamaliel's counsel and, and what they're saying about these apostles, to stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action should be of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found to be fighting against God. And they took his advice after calling the apostles in. So these are the leaders, right? 
and they flogged them and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus and then released them. So now if we look at it in my own heart, you go, okay, wait a minute. I'm not going to preach Jesus anymore because that kind of hurt. <laughs> I mean, that was pain inflicted upon me for doing what's right. But that's not how they saw this. In verse 41, so they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Okay? Are we willing to say, God, use me in a way that you see fit? Not yet, preacher. Not, not yet. Are we willing to at least say every good gift comes from God. Every bad thing comes from Satan. So God admonishes us, encourages us. I'm closing. In Revelation chapter 2, in the Roman era, how difficult it was to serve God. But being inconvenient, Maybe it's not such a bad thing. Remember this. We are strangers. We are aliens in this world. We truly don't fit in. We're not supposed to. I think maybe the problem that we find ourselves in is maybe we try too hard to fit in to a place that will never welcome us or receive us as Christians. In closing, verse 10 of Revelation chapter 2. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. Okay, Lord, I think I can do that. That you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days, Okay, is that a literal 10 days, Lord? Or, okay, I think I can do that. Be faithful until death. <laughs> Wait a minute, Lord. That's going too far. To be a Christian, we have to be willing to suffer. And here's what's interesting. Even if you're not a Christian, you're going to suffer. Right? But the difference is, suffer for the name of Jesus with a purpose with the purpose allowing God to demonstrate His will and His grace in you. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. This morning, the crown of life is, is offered to each one of us. If this morning you are not a child of God and you're willing to surrender to God and give your life to God, turn your life over to God, hearing His Word and believing it and having godly sorrow in your heart, repentance, confessing his name before men, being baptized, immersed in water for the remission of your sins. God said, I'll wash all your sins away. I'll give you a gift, a gift of the Holy Spirit. And then just stay faithful and it'll take you home when it's time to go. Maybe you're a member of the body and you need prayers. Maybe your life isn't right, isn't in line with Jesus. This morning, if we can help in any way, please come all together. We stand and sing our song of imitation. Why don't you come? Stop.